Here at Lady Farmer, we talk about so many different aspects of slow and sustainable living, a subject matter that can at times feel confusing, overwhelming, even misleading. And that's why a few years ago, we set out to write a book that might be a guide for those seeking a life of beauty, simplicity, and sustainability. We're thrilled to be able to offer you our own small guide for cultivating slow living, sustainable simplicity close to home available in our online marketplace. In the book, you've woven an easy-to-digest narrative of stories, recipes, tips, resources, ideas, and reflection. This collection of essays and resources will guide you to think about your own relationship to the planet, what you eat, what you wear, and how you live a sustainable lifestyle. It also contains a 21-day slow-living challenge of daily thought exercises to lead you in the process. For you Good Dirt listeners, we are offering free shipping of this wonderful little book with the code THEGOODDIRT in our online marketplace. So use the code THEGOODDIRT, T-H-E-G-O-O-D-D-I-R-T at checkout when you go to purchase your copy of The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living in our online marketplace for free shipping. That's The Good Dirt at The Lady Farmer online marketplace for free shipping on The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living. We hope you enjoy it. Thanks, everybody. Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. When the team left me after that wonderful day in July in 2017, and we realized what we had was something very special and different. Well, you're now custodian of the gene. Everything that existed, the entirety of the lost flock was in my hands, was on my farm. And that was a huge responsibility. listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now, the farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Hi, everybody. So here we are, deep into winter. Hopefully, you're enjoying some cozy time this season, wearing your favorite sweaters and coats and wrapped in your blankets. Hopefully, you've got some real wool blankets and coats and sweaters and things to enjoy because there's nothing like the real thing. We often find ourselves talking about wool because wool is one of the oldest known materials used for textiles. It's a renewable resource, so we're definitely all about it here on The Good Dirt. And we often feature wool on the show, its wonderful qualities and the people that work with it and their stories. So here are just a few more facts about wool, some things you might have heard before or maybe not. Emma, you want to go over some things about wool? Sure. So 
Wool is breathable, water repellent, and temperature regulating and self-cleaning. So it's super ideal for clothing for all of those purposes. It is biodegradable and compostable. Of course, it just goes right back to the earth. It can be used as insulation, as we discussed in the episode with Andrew Leggy of Havelock Wool. We will link that in the show notes. It is flame retardant, as explained in our conversation with Jason Schaefer of Holy Lamb Organics. We will also link that in the show notes. And the production of it has the potential of mitigating climate change. As you will hear in the interviews with Lonnie Estel of Lonnie's Lana Fine Rambouillet Wool and Jeannie Carver of Shanika Wool. All of these episodes will be linked in the show notes. Another fun thing is that we carry the Holy Lamb Organics products of the Holy Lamb Organics episode that we did with Jason Schaefer a couple of years ago. Totally worth a listen. So those products are all in our store on ladyfarmer.com in the marketplace. And some of the best is the wool pillows and the wool comforters. I sleep on a wool pillow and I have the dual wool comforter, which is basically like two thinner wool comforters tied together. And then in the winter, we tie them together and there's two layers. And then in the summer, you can take them apart and you basically have like two wool comforters. It's amazing. So all of that can be found on our website from Holy Lamb Organics in Washington State. And we love them. So check them out. Yes. And I too have the pillows and the wool comforter. And just let me tell you, there's nothing like being under that wool comforter on a cold night. It is just absolutely delicious. And you just need to see for yourself. So go check those out. And so on today's episode, we're talking about wool and sheep again with our guest, Jane Cooper, whose passion for knitting led her to a search for a rare breed sheep and their distinctive wool. In her book, The Lost Flock, just published in September of last year, Jane tells the story of the remarkable and rare little horned sheep known as the Orkney and how she moved to one of Scotland's wildest islands to save them. Finding she was the sole custodian of this lost flock, she began investigating their mysterious and ancient history, tracking the origins of the Boerarei breed and its significance to Scotland's natural heritage. From Viking times to Highland crofts and the nefarious research experiments in Edinburgh, this is a so far untold real-life detective story. Join us here as we follow Jane's journey in securing a future for her beloved sheep and along the way, how she reveals their deep connection to the Scottish landscape. So here's Jane Cooper, author of The Lost Flock. Hello, I'm Jane Cooper. I'm speaking to you from Orkney, which is an archipelago of about 70 islands just off the northeast coast of mainland Scotland. Not all islands are inhabited. I'm on the largest island in Orkney, which is called Mainland. I'm here. I have a small farm where I have Orkney Borrowray sheep. Borrowray are the rarest breed in the UK, and I work as part of a, an informal collective. We call ourselves the Orkney Borrowery Community, and there are eight farmers and some craftspeople, butcher we work with, and together we produce very slow food because we produce mutton, which takes, well, it's three years from the time you put the ewe and the ram together until we have sheep that are ready to be taken to the abattoir. We like to use as much of these sheep as possible 
So we also produce tanned sheepskins, products from their horns. All the sheep have horns, male and female. We've got someone hoping to make needles out of the leg bones and the wool products, of course, lots and lots of different wool products. And we're hoping to make leather one day. Yes, and the story of how you got there to be doing what you're doing today, raising these sheep, is a story you tell in your recently published book, The Lost Flock. And I want you to tell us all about that and how you came to write this book and about your life there. The big event, I guess, happened 10 years ago when we moved to Orkney and we were living in the northeast of England, several hundred miles south of here. Why we came here came up for a holiday in 2011 with my husband and I just fell in love with the place. I had that experience which other incomers have told me about. I got here and I felt like I'd come home. It was a very strange experience, that concept of place. Before then, I didn't really know what Orkney was. I kept coming back for holidays and then in 2013, my husband actually applied for and got a job up here and we moved, which was quite a scary step at the time. And I was a spinner and weaver and knitter. So I thought, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful to have a spinner's flock of sheep? You know, just a tiny flock of pet sheep. So we thought, oh, we'll buy a house with a field. But it didn't quite work out like that because we ended up with one that has 25 acres. So that's <laughs> lots of fields, lots of small fields by Orkney standards. And I knew about Borrowe sheep and I wanted to have Borrowe sheep. When I contacted the person in the Highlands who had a flock of them and arranged to buy five little weather lambs from him, male lambs have been castrated. And that means that the quality of their fleece is fairly consistent throughout their lifetime. The ewes have the stresses of pregnancy and lambing, so their fleece can be affected by them. So that was all fine. And then I got the news a few weeks before the big collection date one of them had been too good to castrate. And that's actually the title of the chapter. So I'd got four weathers and a rat and 25 acres instead of one field. I'm really fascinated by what you said about when you visited the Orkney Islands on holiday in 2011, you really felt drawn to it. You felt like you had come home. Something felt very familiar to you about it. So that makes me curious about your background and your childhood and maybe what might have contributed to that feeling of connection with the place. I grew up in Warwickshire, which is right in the middle of England. It's called the Leafy County. So actually, I grew up s surrounded by woods. We started off in Coventry when I was a child. My mum, she was a teacher and she had such a love for nature. So I would be out in our garden and watch her gardening and she'd show me the worms and the little bugs and grubs in the soil and the birds. I could watch the birds. And then we moved out to the countryside of Warwickshire when I was at seven. And that was just paradise because I had woods immediately around me, which I go in them a lot. We kept poultry or I should say I kept poultry because my job as the eldest child in the family, I've got three siblings, was to look after the chickens and to produce eggs and meat. We had surplus cockles from breeding. We ate them. So that was my job. And I just grew up with this great love of nature, being surrounded by it and being very comfortable outside. So I think that had an influence when we moved up here. Although Orkney, of course, 
being a very windswept island, the Gulf Stream keeps our temperatures very comfortable, not too hot in summer and not too cold in winter. But the wind means there are very few trees in Auckland. However, our little croft house is in a sheltered east-facing valley and we do actually have some trees, which is wonderful. So tell us about the lost flock. Yes, I need to tell you the story of the Bobberay sheep. They're part of a group of sheep called the Northern European short-tailed sheep. They actually have fewer vertebrae in their tails and they're different to modern sheep. They are descended directly from the very first primitive sheep that came into Europe with Neolithic farmers over 6,000 years ago. And over those 6,000 years, some of them in certain areas around the North Atlantic haven't really changed very much at all. Perhaps some people have heard of St Kilda. That's a little archipelago of islands right out in the Atlantic, 50 miles west of the Western Isles of Scotland. And it was evacuated in 1930. So a lot of people have heard about St Kilda. And they have some sheep called Soe sheep, little dark brown sheep. It's thought were put on St Kilda by the Bronze Age, in the Bronze Age, because with all the seabirds, it actually does have good grazing, although it's very windswept out there. So we've got these little primitive sheep. And in the Highlands of Scotland, they were called the Dunface or the Tanface. And the crofters, they were hugely important to the crofters' lives. They provided wool for all their clothing and bedding. They also provided milk. And milk was made into cheese. And cheese is a product that you store without refrigeration. So for subsistence crofters, very small-scale farmers, that's important to have a food product you could store that was highly, highly nutritious and high-calorie. And they would have eaten a few of them, but not many. Many crofting families would have had perhaps half a dozen sheep, not huge flocks. And then what happened at some point before 1697 was that some of these Dunface sheep were taken over to St Kilda, and some of them were put on the one island in St Kilda that's inhabited. It's called Herta. And some of them, importantly, were put on the uninhabited island of Borore and left there as a feral flock quite possible because they shed their fleece naturally. They have very primitive characteristics. What happened after 1697 that was significant in the story of this breed? In 1697, a man called Martin Martin, that really is his name, was touring the Scottish islands and he wrote about the Scottish islands. He went to St Kilda and he, there in his writings, he recorded the fact there were about 400 of these sheep on Borroway Island. So we know that the, the Tanface, the Dunface sheep were taken from the Highlands to St Kilda before 1697. I think probably a good few decades before they'd have taken a few and they would have bred to reach 400. It's so difficult getting on and off the island. They could never have taken 400 sheep. I see. So it's like you're going from this source. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. And the men from St Kilda would take a boat out once a year and they'd get to Borrow nowhere to land, so they'd have to leap from the boat, scale the cliff onto the island, and they would collect the fleece. It was the fleece they wanted. They'd eat some of the sheep while they were there. They'd be there for a few weeks. And they took their dogs with them. And their dogs had been specially trained to catch sheep can't be rounded up as a flock. When Borrow sheep get 
startled or alarmed. They don't flock together like modern sheep. Even now, they scatter to the four winds. So the sheepdog, which had their teeth filed down a bit, were trained to run down and hold a sheep in their jaws. Then the men would come along, tie up the sheep's legs, and take the fleece off. And you can actually take it off by plucking it because it sheds naturally, and that's called rooing. And that's how I take the wool off my sheep now. We roo them. Oh, so I've never heard of that. They, they, <laughs> yes, it's it's possible with some Shetland sheep, not all. So is sheep, you can roo them. Many of the Nordic breeds of the short-tailed sheep, they have been more intensively farmed in recent times because they've had to be taken indoors in winter. And many of them have lost the ability to naturally shed their fleece. Borrowers have, have retained it. When you roo a fleece, you're not cutting through a fibre. It's coming off at the point where each individual fibre has narrowed down so it weakens and naturally breaks off. And if you think about the structure of wool, which microscopically has a hollow core, then if it's rude, then each end of each fibre because they grow a fleece each year and then shed it. Each end has sort of sealed off with that narrowing so it will separate. And without sheep, there would have been no Vikings exploring the world in their little open boat. When you think about it, you've got Vikings in these open boats in all weathers, and my goodness, did they get around right out into the Atlantic. Their wool clothing would have kept them warm, because when wool gets wet, chemical reaction generates heat. So if you're soaked through and you're wearing wool clothing, you're not going to be freezing cold, even if you feel wet. Oh, even if it's wet. I didn't know that either. Yeah. And it was very insulating, of course, but not if it was wet. Oh, wow. Yep. It's uh, unlike most fibers. I mean, you think of cotton. If you're wearing cotton jeans and they get soaked, the fibers kind of shrink a bit and the wind really gets right in. And you feel really wet and clammy and horrible. And that's not the case with wool. They would also have had oiled leather cloaks as well. But they also had special sort of blankets that doubled up as cloaks that were made a bit like knotted rugs, but with fleece. So they would have looked almost from a distance like a sheepskin. But it, it wasn't a sheepskin. It was woven that they were weaving these lots of fleece into it. But more well, just as important is that the sails were made of wool. And that's where it gets really, where it can get really geeky. I mean, I loved re- researching that chapter of the book about the wool sails. Wow, and I've never heard of that. That's incredible. How was the wool, like, how were they created? Woven? Yes, they were woven. Double-coated, the, the primitive sheep and short-tailed sheep have double-coated fleeces. And that means that they've got an outer fleece of very long, strong, hairy fibers and an undercoat of wool, which is very, very soft, very fine. In borrowers, some of it's been micron tested and it's down to cashmere level. It's that soft. So you've got two fibers on the one sheet, very, very different properties. And what the Vikings did was, of course, they were spinning with spindles. There were no spinning wheels back then. So they'd take, they'd separate these two to fleece, process them differently. So the outer coat was spun with this sort of, the, the fibers parallel to each other, with the world spinning in one 
the spindle whirl going in one direction. And that was the warp. That's the bit of the weaving a cloth that's under tension. And in Viking times, they had what's called warp-weighted looms, which are like a, a sort of wooden structure leaning against the wall of the building they were in. And you have vertical fibers from a beam along the top of the loom. And at the bottom, they're held with loom weights, which are often made of clay, fired clay. And they're just a weight with a hole in so you can put the threads through. And then the undercoat was spun differently and with the spindle going in the other direction. And it was, wasn't spun with the fibers parallel. It's called woolen spinning. The fibers are a bit more mixed up and there's some air trapped in there. And that was the weft, which is the bit of when you're weaving, where you're weaving it in and out of the vertical warp. So you've got these two fibers going, forming different parts of the woven cloth and they would weave it in a twill pattern. And the twill pattern is when you look at cloth and you sort of see diagonal lines running across it, often a two by two twill. And they'd be weaving it in small strips, about 60 centimeters wide. That's the width that a woman's arm can pass the shuttle through to be passing the weft through it. And when they'd woven the strips, they were fulled. And that's a bit like felting wool. So you take your new cloth. If they use felted wool, you know, we were talking about the sails and their coats and everything. How did felting come into it? Was that something they did? Was that a technology they had yet? And does the Orkney or does this breed of sheep have the type of wool that felts well? Yes, it does actually felt very well. I think it's the very fine undercoat that helps it felt so well. I did an experiment once where I put some fleece in the bottom of my Wellington boots. And I added a tiny bit of water because I wear wool socks. So I didn't think there'd be that much sweat and moisture around. And I just wore it, wore them around the farm. And after a few weeks, it had all matted together. And that had actually felt the agitation of me walking around, which did make me think that when the very first sheep were used by nearly farmers, I suspect the very first thing they did with the wool was felt it. They probably put it in their footwear as an attempt to keep warm because they'd have had coverings of leather. And if you put some sort of padding in, it's much more comfortable to walk on. And then when it felted, they'd have thought, aha, what have we got here? And so felting is actually a very ancient craft. If you think about the Mongolian steppes and the yurt pastoral farmers use, that they're made of felt, that they're made of wool felt. It's very insulating and it has properties in weather. This is so fascinating. And it related to this and the rueing, where you said that these type of sheep, you can actually kind of pull the fleece off. I'm guessing like for Neolithic people, it was a, maybe not, but maybe it was a simpler operation to get the fleece. Or did you say sometimes the fleece just comes off by itself and it could be gathered from the ground? You didn't have to take it off the sheep all the time. Is that right? Did I understand that right? Yes. I mean, if you don't do anything with primitive sheep, the fleece sheds and it just falls to the ground. And if before people were farming and domesticating sheep, they would have been able to gather this fiber from the ground. Thousands and thousands of years ago, it actually wasn't very woolly. It was more hair. When you think about wild mouflon sheep, bighorn sheep in America, they don't have big woolly coats. They're most 
care and its selective breeding over the centuries caused the wool component of their coats to increase so much. There are some little statues that have been found in the Middle East going back about, I think it's 7,000, 8,000 years. And you can see from the way that the fleece has been represented on these little clay models, they were already getting woolly by then. You can also use archaeology to find out when sheep fleeces turned from mostly hair to mostly wool. And that's because for thousands of years, they have been spinning bast fibers, that's plant fibers. You think nettle or flax or tree bark. You can soak these plant fibers and do various processes to them, wetting and scrunching and all sorts of interesting names. And you get these very long, strong fibers, which were spun. And they were spun with big, heavy spindle whorls. And of course, when you think what survives thousands and thousands of years, it's not the wood and the fabric and the organic thing. It's stone, bone in some cases, or clay, pottery. So they found the spindle whorls and they've measured them over the centuries, over the thousands of years. And they suddenly find in the late Neolithic, so that's about three, four thousand years ago, spindle whorls were getting smaller and lighter. And that means they were spinning something else. And what they were spinning is wool. So at that point, we know sheep fleece had changed. And I also would like to point out, a lot of listeners might not realize this if you're not in the textile world too much, that modern day sheep commercial sheep and so forth, you have to shear them. They won't survive if you don't take the wool off. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. It suits modern farmers much more, well, in fact, modern, I say, going back hundreds of years, to have fleece that stayed on the sheep so you could cut it off in one go. And they use metal bow shears. I, I say they're like scissors. They pivot around a different point. But yes, you've got these metal hand shears, and they've been around for hundreds of years. So you could take all the fleece off in one go, and you weren't losing any. Because one problem of sheep that shed is if you don't get them in at the right point to rue their fleece off them, it does just get shed on the ground, and then it gets all sorts of plant, vegetable matter, plant material in it, and it gets muddy and it gets wet. Yeah. So yes, modern sheep will just keep growing their fleece. And if it's not taken off, it can become so long and so heavy that the sheep can't really move very easily. There was a merino sheep in Australia, I think it was New Zealand, that escaped and got up into the mountains and was there for several years. And he was called Shrek because he looked like a monster. It was this merino sheep with this massive fleece and he could barely walk. So they rescued him and it was a massive job to take this matted, felted, huge fleece off it. I think it weighed something like 20 stones. I think I remember seeing something like that in the news. Those pictures were really fun. I mean, it's sad, but they were crazy. So it's actually an important part of sheep welfare that for modern breeds that you do take the fleece off every year. Yes, I think that's something that's really important for people to understand. This is so fascinating about the history of this breed. You were introduced to it when you moved out to Orkney and with your interest in fiber arts. So let's 
bring it around to you and how you sort of became the modern-day steward for this breed. Oh, right. We've got to go back to 2011, to 2010, actually. So in 2010, I was doing a knitting on a knitting holiday workshop in Scotland in a place called Stirling. And we had some American tutors that came over, including Deborah Robson, Deb Robson, who is incredibly well-known in fleecy spinning knitting circles. She's one of the world's experts on fleece. And she was doing a workshop on knitting with wool from different breeds of sheep. I mean, Britain has more breeds of sheep than any other country in the world. We've got about 60 native breeds and then lots of continental breeds that come over. And their wool has very different properties. We've got long wool sheep, very, very long fleeces. They need to be sheared twice a year. I mean, their fleeces can get sort of 24 inches long and it's lustrous. And then we have Shetland sheep who have a lovely fine fleece that is woolen spun and makes lovely lightweight jumpers that are incredibly warm. So that Deb was doing this workshop with us. We had people from five different continents there. We had an amazing day and a company in England down in Cornwall specializes in spinning wool from different breeds. So they'd supplied the yarns for us to use. And it's Blacker Yarns is the sort of part of the company that sells wool. And Sue Blacker was there as well. She started the company. So I got to meet Sue and all of us at Deb's class said, oh, we really want to stay in touch with each other after this amazing day we've had. So there's a big, massive knitting website called Ravelry, which has forums on it and form a group. So we decided I'd start a group on Ravelry where we could all keep, you know, chat with each other. And we ended up with a, a sheep of the week feature. Every week we would study, we'd start a new thread and we'd study a different breed of sheep. It was fantastic. And then one day Felicity, a friend of mine, sort of said, well, what's the UK's rarest breed of sheep? Looked it up. We have a rare breed survival trust that lists all our rare breeds. And there it was, Borrowray. At the time, there were fewer than 300 breeding ewes in Britain. So, oh, right, this is very rare. So I thought, oh, if it's rare, it's got to be special. So they must be making knitting yarn or something with it. Well, no, there was nothing. So I got in touch with Sue Blacker and I said, if I can collect some fleece, some borrowed fleece, can you spin a yarn for us? Because we want to try knitting with it. And she said, yes, you'll need 20 kilograms of nice fleece. So that's what? 44 pounds. My calculating is correct. So I started tracking down people who owned these sheep and they might only have half a dozen and I'd get hold of one person and then they'd give me contact details for other people. So I spoke to about 15 different people and I ended up driving around the country collecting their fleece. Some of them posted it to me. Most of them just either just let the sheep shed their fleece naturally out in the field or they would sort of gather it up and put it into sacks and then just forget about it. No one was doing anything with it. So as part of driving around the country to collect it, I got to meet the sheep and I absolutely fell in love with them. They are such feisty individual characters. They are just wonderful. I mean, they're small. When you think of modern sheep breeds, the, the rams weigh about 50 kilos, which is 100 pounds, and the females only weigh... 35 kilos and some of the females that their backs only come as high as my knee and I'm not a tall person 
So they are very small compared to modern breeds. And Sue spun this yarn, and that was the first ever Borore knitting yarn. I mean, they actually rationed it. So it sold out. It went all around the world, and it sold out very quickly. What I'd done was I didn't just send all the fleece down to Sue. We had to sort it out, first of all, and because it was come from people who never sold their fleece. So it had all sorts of bits of rubbish in and soil and dirt and poo. You know, think of the back end of a sheep. It often has little bits of poo on it. It was not very nice. So we had to separate out all the yucky stuff. And as part of doing this, that's when I got a group of my spinning friends around to help me because this was definitely a job for a group of people. And we, we came across the fine undercoat and we thought, oh, you know, this is luscious. As spinners, we were desperate to spin this really fine undercoat. And I thought, is it a waste to have this fine undercoat in this knitting yarn with all the coarser fibre? Quick phone call to Sue. And yes, if we took the fine undercoat, some of it out, it wouldn't affect the final yarn. So that's what we did. And so I put into set piles the fleece that had lots of fine undercoat. And there were one or two bits of fleece, because we're not talking whole fleeces here. We're talking bits of, it's not like a whole fleece being sheared off in one go. It was handfuls or amateurs were clipping their sheep and just taking off chunks. And I put to one side the stuff that had lots of fine undercoating. And then I spent the winter separating it, separating out the undercoat from the outer coat, which of course is the Viking women were doing. And again, it was a communal activity because they stored the fleeces when they took them off, when they rooed them off in the summer. They stored them in bags made of sheepskin cured with fish oil and they sealed up the bags. And then in the winter, when it was warm, they were inside their longhouses with the fire going. They would open up the bags and they might even add a little more oil to the fleece and then they could easily separate it out it was a group activity so you'd have a whole family or several families sitting around together in the evening by the warmth and light of the fire separating their fleece into the outer coat and undercoat was a rather more solitary job when I did it and I'd sit on the chair with a bag of fleece on my lap a basket on one side into which I dropped the fine undercoat and a box on the other side and I'd drop hairy bits in there it took months and Meantime, Sue was experimenting at the mill to see if they could do this with some of their machinery. And thank goodness, when I'd done about two-thirds of it, I got a phone call saying, we've done it, we've cracked it. You can you can stop hand separating. So I took it all to Sue, and what they did with this fine undercoat was they there wasn't enough, there wasn't 20 kilos of it. So Sue got hold of some very fine soe, and they blended them together, and with this very fine blended wool, they were able to spin a lace weight yarn, which we called, of course, St. Kilda, after the two breeds of sheep on St. Kilda. And that lace weight yarn is an absolute joy to knit with, and they still produce a limited batch of it every year. So by the time we're getting to me moving to Orkney, I'd had a lot of experience with the fleece. I knew that I wanted this really interesting fleece to work with because you could do everything. You could use the very coarse rear end of the sheep to spin yarn for socks and then the neck fleece and the undercoat 
you could spin into baby clothes if you wanted because it's very fine. And then along the body of the sheep, you'd get the sort of fleece if you took out the worst hairy bits that would make a nice sweater yarn. And the sheep come in different colours. So this was it. This was my complete spinning experience. I should say that something else happened between 2011 and 2012, which was that Sue and I together worked on a project called Woolsack, which was linked to the 2012 Olympic and Paralympic Games in London. This was completely Sue's idea. I just helped her. Woolsack became an official part of the Olympic and Paralympic Games, where it was involving community in the Games, in what was called the Inspire program. And the idea was that we were going to use British wool and knitters and weavers and crocheters all throughout the United Kingdom could choose to make a cushion which was stuffed with British wool, which was given as gifts to the athlete. Now, that was the intention, and we were an official recognized part of the Games, but then the commercial sponsors found out about our wonderful cushions, and they didn't like them at all. So they Why tried not? to shut us down because we'd, we'd sent samples out to some of the famous British athletes who were highly likely to be in the games. And they were posting photos of themselves holding these wonderful cushions and saying how wonderful they were. And the fact they were made by volunteers was very special. So when you think of the official sponsors, they didn't like that at all. We refused to be shut down. We ended up contacting, rather than having the cushions officially go into the Olympic Village, we got them directly to the athlete, which involved contacting athletes. And I took to Twitter and I started tweeting about it. And my husband set up a website for us. And all I was tweeting was, you know, pictures of cushions saying, look, people in, in the UK making these wonderful cushions as gifts for you. If you want one, tell the rest of your teammates and contact us through the website. So we end up giving a lot of them to teams at the training camps, which were often held at universities in Britain, where the teams would come from abroad and have their last minute training. Sometimes we had one case where I actually had to hand them over in a pub car park because the officials found out about us and I wasn't able to go onto the university campus to hand them over to the, that was the Team GB athletes. Wow, it sounds like you're dealing in some sort of black market thing, some sort yeah, of it, it under, was like that. underground operation for volunt pillows made by volunteers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I should say for the Americans, when we're talking cushions, we mean pillows. The American diving team, they got theirs at King's Cross Station in London. On the Woolsack website, we have some wonderful photos of the American diving team at the station getting their cushions. The one benefit of doing it this way was that it meant that people who'd made the cushions, volunteers, actually got to meet the athletes because we'd arrange for a small group of cushion makers, volunteers, to take a batch of cushions to the athletes wherever they were. And it meant there was a wonderful interaction between athletes and makers, which wouldn't have happened if they'd been officially. That's incredible. We had a similar interview recently with someone here stateside who created the American uniforms from her wool. So I love that. I love that that's a way to express sort of this idea of regional sourcing and, and keeping things 
keeping things. I would love to hear a little bit about life on the island. And I understand that, that your new life on this island is, is, might be different from how you lived before. And is the island somewhat wild? And what is that like? Oh, right. Having no trees and having islands surrounded by the sea. And we're not talking big islands. I mean, some of them, North Ronaldsay, which is the northernmost, is only three miles long and one mile wide. And that has a population of about 70. In the whole of Orkney, the population is about 21,000. And our main town has a population of about 8,000. Getting on and off Orkney can be challenging because we of the winds and the weather. So sometimes, we, we've already had it this autumn, several days at a time when the winds are too strong and the waves are too high for the ferries to operate. So then people on Orkney's little islands can't get to Orkney mainland. And some days when we can't take a ferry to the Scottish mainland. The planes, we do have an airport and it does have little eight-seater planes that go out to our isles and then larger planes that take us down into Scotland. But some days not even the planes operate. So you've got to be prepared for winter and make sure you've got your cupboards are full. Do you have to take a plane to get your groceries? Oh, no, no. I, I live on mainland. So I'm about 11 miles from Kirkwall, which is our largest town. So I can just drive. We've even got three supermarkets, much smaller than, much, much smaller supermarkets than down in mainland Scotland. But I prefer to use our local shops whenever possible. And it's interesting because when the ferries don't run and the supply vans can't come into Orkney, you see the supermarket shelves empty. But of course, I go to my usual little local shop and they've got everything you could want. We do have a little bit of horticulture here. You can grow potatoes or tatties, as they're called. Swedes grow very well, neeps, brassicas, cabbages and cauliflower. What is a neep? A neep is a swede. It's a bit like a giant orange-colored turnip. It's not a sweet potato, is it? I'm just trying to think what the equivalent would be in America. I lived in Canada for a year, and there's nothing like turnips that I ever call from Canada. It's not a beet. Yes, it is. It's a, sort a big of orange beet. Beet. Yeah, yeah okay. a big orange beet that comes in lots of different yeah. varieties. And in Scotland, people have their favorites. And we have a local dish called Shot that is mashed up potato mixed with mashed up swede or tatties and neeps it's called and you mix it up with butter and milk and I add a little bit of nutmeg and some people have a little bit of onion in it and that is a local Orkney dish that's shot. Do you garden where you are at all? Or? Oh yes yes before we moved up here we were almost self-sufficient in fruit and vegetables. Oh really? And we lived in the middle we lived in the middle of a city in the northeast of England and we didn't have much of a garden. We had a tiny backyard, about 19 feet square. But in England, we have areas of land called allotment sites, divided up into plots. And traditionally, I'm just trying to convert meters to yards. Uh, well, 25 meters by 10 meters is an allotment plot. And this is a historical concept so that people in cities could grow their own food. And you rent your plot and they're very old terms to do with the area of the plot but the mod 25 meters by 10 i had two of these 
we had one in my husband's name and one in my own, <laughs> and I could produce pretty much all the fruit and veg the family needed on those two plots. So when we came up to Orkney, we thought, oh, wonderful, we, we don't have to travel. I used to cycle to the allotment site, but I didn't go on a bike. I had a tricycle with a huge basket on the back into which I could put anything I wanted to take to the allotment site, or more important, bring the food to bring back. So it all go in this huge basket on the back of my tricycle. And that's how I got around the city. And if I went to spinning group, my spinning wheel was in the huge basket on the back of my tricycle. It's a very efficient way of moving around, sort of that not using any petroleum. So yes, when we moved up here and we had all this land, we wanted a garden. It can be challenging and we've had to learn what we can grow. I used to be an apple identifier. Oh, really? I was trained to identify different varieties of apple because England especially had hundreds of apple varieties, not nearly as many now. People in the autumn, they've often bought a new house and there might be an apple tree and, oh, what, what sort of apple is it? So they'd bring that apple along, usually October time to apple days. And I'd be part of a team of people and we'd identify their apples for them. And as part of being an apple identifier, you need to be growing lots of varieties yourself because every year the weather alters slightly the appearance of apples. So I knew what the apples were like that year. So I grew most of my trees as cordons. That's where you grow your apple trees. It's one straight vertical stem trunk with short little fruiting spurs coming off it. And that means you can get a lot of trees, a lot of varieties in a small area. And when we came up here, I wanted to bring my apples. So all the young cordon trees, I cut them down to about four feet in height. And I dug them all up. And we put them in the sheep trailer that we bought. And brought them up to Orkney with us when we moved. And I planted them out. And then I discovered that apple trees don't fruit very well in Orkney. I was able to keep a lot of them alive. But it's taken 10 years to get to the point where some of them are now fruiting outside. Shelter is important. And we now grow a lot of our fruit and veg undercover. Not in a polytunnel. You have polytunnels in America. Great yes. metal hoops with plastic. We do have polytunnels in Orkney. Problem is, one tiny pin and the winter wind can rip it off. So there's a new product now called Polycrub. And a crub is a local name for usually a small circular stone construction that you grow. It's not just like a circular wall, small, and you grow your vegetables inside it. And that will provide shelter from the wind. So they put together a company in Shetland, which is further north than north, together the words polytunnel and crub. And they're called polycrubs. And they use waste materials from a salmon fishing industry. So they're the same hoop shape as polytunnels, but instead of plastic, it's twin-walled polycarbonate that can withstand winds. I think they've tested them up to 140 miles an hour. So they're much more resilient. You grow lots of things we've come to discover here. So circling back around to the sheep over the years... Correct me if I'm wrong, but as I understand it, you have become the steward and protector of this rare breed of sheep. Is that correct? You're kind of 
fostering the survival of this line. Tell us a little bit about that. You on your farm. Is this correct? Yes. Yes. When I was contacting all these people with Borrowery Sheep back in 2011, I kept hearing talk about the lost flock. And it turned out that when the first few sheep came off Borrowery onto mainland Britain, and it was to do some experiments on them, and they came to research centre in Scotland. And this was in 1971. And a few more came off in the 70s. And when they'd finished the research on them and they were breeding them, then sheep enthusiasts took them to have in their little flocks. And the Rare Breed Survival Trust recognised them and registered them. And they were called after the island. They became the Borrowray breed. But some of the sheep, when you register a new breed like this, every sheep has to be examined by an official and the breeding records have to be examined. And some of the sheep, a little flock of them, had gone north from Edinburgh into the Highlands. And at the time, this is 1981, was too expensive for anyone to go up from England into the Highlands to inspect these sheep. So they weren't registered. And once that first moment had passed, they weren't able to be added to the register. So they became known as the lost flock. And they were kept separate because anyone with registered sheep can't breed with non-registered sheep because then the offspring can't be registered. So they were kept by enthusiasts in the Highlands of Scotland over the decades and just known as the lost flock. And this was where I got my sheep from. It was a lovely couple, Bob and Anne Cook, on the west coast highlands of Scotland. And Bob had been the very first person contacted about the sheep and the fleece. And the fleece he'd sent me was lovely. It was some of the nicest of all the fleece I collected up from all the different flocks, about 15 different flocks. And of course, it was nearer to Orkney than any, any other flocks. So it was Bob I contacted when we moved up here. And I said, can I buy some of your little weathers? And I'm not really into showing sheep. So it didn't matter to me that they weren't registered. I knew that Bob had kept and Anne kept meticulous breeding records through the decades. So that was fine. But Bob had tried to get his The Lost Flock sheep bought, registered and recognized in some way. And I took up his efforts when I got mine. And finally, in 2017, the Rare Breed Survival Trust, things had changed over the decades. And one of their officers came up with the using the concept of a supplementary register. So it was going to be a separate register, but linked to the main borrow rate register. And so Ruth Dalton from the Rare Breed Survival Trust came up, along with Christine Williams, who is the expert on borrow sheep and has kept them since the very first years. Janice from the Soe and Borrow Sheep Society came up. They actually came and stayed with us and they inspected my sheep and all our records and all my breeding sheep were put onto a supplementary register. And that was hugely important. Because what happened when I was researching the book was I actually found out that there had been more than one collection of sheep from Borrowray to go to the research centre and that the lost flock sheep are now recognised by the Rare Breed Survival Trust to have come from a line of sheep not represented in any of the other mainland flocks. So we have slightly different genetic ground. So what will... 
become of them? You're now growing them and are you selling them to other people to also breed them? Is it a growing breed? I mean, what's the future of, of this, of the lost flock now that you are tending it? Yes. When the team left me after that wonderful day in July in 2017, and we realized what we had was something very special and different. Christine, as she left, said to me, well, you're now custodian of the gene. Because what had happened since 2013 was that Anne Cook had sadly died. Bob had stopped breeding sheep. I mean, he's older than I am. The other two flocks that had got their sheep from Bob, they pretty much wound down as well. So everything that existed that of known provenance that was the entirety of the lost flock was in my hands, was on my farm. And that was a huge responsibility and is not very wise biosecurity-wise. So a friend of mine, Jenny, in Chapinsay, we arranged for a little flock, breeding flock, to go over to her. The second ram I'd got in 2013, I'd allowed my children to name, my adult children. And every sheep born in 2013, I wanted to have the initial letter B. So I said to my kids, okay, I want a name for a ram that begins with B. And what they came up with is kind of a slang term that implies high fecundity, high fertility. And this <laughs> ram was named Bollocks. That was his actual registered name. So my flock prefix is Setisgarth. So he was Setisgarth Bollocks. Oh, that's so great. So it was Bollocks who went out to Chapinstay along with a small group of ewes. And Jenny started her flock. And I started producing mutton. They're a very slow-growing breed. They don't reach their final sort of full adult size till they're two to three years. Some of them actually grow even slower and keep growing a little bit into their fourth year. And mutton, they're too small to produce lamb. And I don't like the modern, very intensive lamb meat industry where you can have lambs being fed on concentrates and they actually go for slaughter as young as 10 weeks old. I wanted slow food. I wanted sheep that had lived a very good life, had enjoyed two or three summers. I love that you say that so much. And I love that so many aspects of the life you're living on this island of these sheep and your vegetables and everything you're growing is so encompassing of what we like to call slow living. And I wonder what you think about the term slow living and how long you've been aware of it and how if you actively pursue it. You just said, I prefer slow food, but I wonder in what aspects you've thought about over the years, the pursuit of slow living, if you would call it that, or if it's just something that naturally you do. Without really thinking about using the term, it's supplying my food and clothing needs in a way that works in harmony with the planet, with nature, if you like. So you're not forcing anything. So it's using natural fibers. Wool, of course, being one of the most sustainable fibers. So we have a lot of wool in our wardrobe. And hemp and linen are, of course, much more sustainable than cotton. Forget about synthetics. We're not going to go there where possible. Agreed. <laughs> Food-wise, yes, growing our own and aware of the rhythm of the seasons, eating seasonally. While, yes, we, we do freeze and we do bottle and we do store food, nothing beats the joy of the eight weeks when you eat asparagus. Oh, you're a glutton on it during those eight weeks. But it's something to look forward to every year. And the very first strawberries picked warm from the plant that you eat during the season. I mean, 
I will extend the season with different varieties. And certainly with apple. Yes, and some varieties of apple, old varieties, naturally you can store them. But it's this rhythm of the seasons and the eating seasonally and doing everything in a way that does not as far as possible harm the natural world around you slowly. Yes, that's such a wonderful way to put it. And as you're you're describing all of these things, my first thought is what a lot of physical labor that all is. For many people listening, they might also hear that and say, oh yeah, well, that sounds great, but that's a lot of work. I, don't, I just, I wonder what it's like from your perspective. Are you just, is it backbreaking work all of the time? It can be. We do have a quad bike. That's as much for safety as anything else when we have to move rams around. And we have a quad bike and tiny little trailer that we use on the farm. Not very often. Most of the time I'm on foot. We get thistles growing in some of our fields. Now, thistles are hugely important for insects and birds, but too many of them is very bad for fleece because it gets caught, the spiky leaves get caught in the fleece. So I thin them out, and that means pulling them by hand, sort of pull them up by the root, so that we've got enough for nature, but not so many that it's going to spoil the sheep's fleece and mean there's areas of the fields that can't easily move around in. And that's, that is backbreaking work. When you're on a quad bike and dashing around and you see it on television, you're going at speed. You're not really seeing what's going on. When I walk around my field and I carry bales of hay to the sheep, but especially in spring, summer and autumn, I'm walking through nature. We do rotational grazing. So that means in high summer, the sheep at any one time are on maybe 5% of our land. So where they aren't grazing, the grass is growing tall. All the different herbs and forbs in there are growing tall and getting to flower and go to seed. And walking through that is just wonderful. So it's calming to the soul, feeds the soul. You see so much wildlife. You know, if, if you just walk quietly, you see so much. I mean, tiny little, as I'm walking through the tall grass, this clouds of tiny little, I don't know if they're moths or butterflies, but they're tiny little winged insects and they're sort of creamy brown in color. And they sort of fly up as a cloud in front of me. And then you might disturb a ground nesting bird and you see it sort of shooting away. And then you know not to go any nearer because she might have a nest of eggs and young frogs. Since we started, I mean, we're not registered organic, but that's our ethos. So since we had all this tall vegetation and stopped putting nasty chemicals on the land, we have frogs back on our land. I love frogs. They're amazing creatures to suddenly see one jumping away from. Yes, I love frogs too. And just for those listening in the States, a quad bike, I looked it up, it's an ATV or like a four-wheeler. Okay, continue. Oh, like on our farm, I like to walk around and do chores and do my own lifting and carrying and stuff when I can, as much as I can. But we did a few years ago get a gator. I guess I think it's a similar thing. It's just something that you can load things up in and drive them around when you need to. And my husband had to kind of talk me into it. Now, of course, I'm really, really grateful for it because I do use it. But when I can, I prefer to, like you say, walk around and be immersed in it myself. But I wanted to ask you about something that I, I learned from your book. I didn't know that Charles Darwin had written a book about worms. I just love worms. I love learning about worms. 
And I thought that was so fascinating. And you had a little discussion in there about, you know, about soil and dirt. And we ask all of our guests this question, and you can answer it any way you want, either literally, like you talk about in the book, or metaphorically. So what does good dirt mean to you? That we share a common language on two sides of the Atlantic. And dirt doesn't have quite the same connection in the UK. It's referred more to something very unpleasant, that something is dirty, there's staining or something on a surface. I mean, Gabe Brown's book, Dirt to Soil, expresses it so beautifully. So yeah, I am a total fan of soil. I mean, there's a whole biosphere beneath our feet, which is unseen and mostly unrecognized for the huge value it is. I mean, when you think of dust on the moon, there's no life there. And yet on the earth, without everything going on in the soil, and there's so much we don't know about soil. I mean, there are soil scientists now, and they keep finding out more and more. And what happens when you get all these different bacteria, fungi and mycorrhizal organisms, and then you get the teeny tiny little bugs and grubs and bigger ones working up to worms that are some of the biggest things you get in the soil. I mean, that is life. And so often modern agriculture destroys it. And then they try and put it back with chemicals. But you can't reproduce what's going on in this, in this natural system, this sort of web of life under our feet. When you're digging into soil and you pick it up and you smell good soil, I mean, that amazing smell. And that is life. Good, uh, I think it would be that soil you hold in your hands and you, it smells alive. Yes, you know, we've had other guests from the UK that have pointed that same thing out, that the association with dirt is not good. So the good dirt doesn't really compute. Yeah. And say, they have a very similar response. So if that's interesting, it's an interesting cultural thing. But, you know, our podcast is The Good Dirt, and it's a metaphor for lots of things, soil and other things. So, so interesting. So as we wind up here, this wonderful conversation and your story, what is it that you would like to leave with our audience? Like, what is it that you most want people to understand about what you're doing and your story and your work there with this flock? And what would you like to tell us? Well, really, what's happened now to protect the sheep? Because we now have eight different flocks in Orkney. We're keeping all the lost flock sheep within Orkney. On five different islands, we're now well over 200 sheep, A 100 of those breeding females. We have four lines of rams with at least three rams in each line because occasionally they kill each other. That's just a hard fact of life. But And we also work with craftspeople, weavers, and Nathan who works horn, and we produce tanned sheepskins, So, and we're wanting to work with leather. But we work together as a very loose collective. We call ourselves the Orkney Borrowery Community, and we operate on agroecological principles which encompasses the full range of agroecology as defined by United Nations, which includes fair trade. And that actually influences how we treat each other with our financial transaction. So we have the concept that no one is going to make a profit at the expense of other people. All want to work on the concept of a dignified livelihood, where obviously no one can have a full-time living from such small numbers of sheep proportionately, it's enough to live a rich, full life with enough, but not excess. And that's how we operate as a community. It's fairly radical. And I hope 
people who hear about what we're doing, and I talk about it much more in the book, might be inspired to think about how in their own lives they could perhaps incorporate some of these concepts. I mean, we've gone pretty full on with the Orkney Borough community, but I hope that everyone could take something, some inspiration from what we're doing on these little islands in the north of Scotland and think, is there some way I could incorporate those concepts into my life? Spread more lightly upon the world, focusing on community and interactions with other people in a way that is positive for all parties. So I guess that's what I'd like people to take away. That's so beautiful. That is the new paradigm, I think, we're we're always talking about and always trying to help people see how things could be. And thank you so much for articulating that so beautifully, demonstrating that in your lifestyle and your work and your writing. You're just such a wonderful example of sustainability and slow living and creating something new for the future and holding on to what's treasured about the past, which is your little lost flock, which is now not lost anymore, thanks to you. Not not lost. And I, the final twist to the story is that so many people have ancestors from Scotland and they will be aware of something called the Highland Clearances, which took place from about the mid-18th century to mid-19th century, when the little crofters and subsistence farmers of Scotland were forced out by people bringing in huge flocks of sheep from further south. And what was cleared out as well were the Highland crofters' little dun-faced sheep. And they were actually thought to be extinct. If you go back to when I was saying about dun-faced were taken out of St Kilda and put on Borrowry, genetic research has now shown that Borrowry sheep are almost entirely pure dun-faced. So Scotland has reclaimed, regained what mm. was thought to be extinct. And that's with modern genetic research. So for anyone with Scottish ancestors, here we have in Orkney, your ancestors, little sheep. I love that so much. Thank you for saying that. Yes. It sounds like you want to keep the breed in Scotland. Like, what if some breeders in the U.S. wanted to start a flock across the pond? Would you discourage that or would you encourage something like that to keep it alive? Or do you want to keep it local? There are so is sheep in America. Not sure if modern importation rules and your biosecurity rule would allow for sheep to be imported. What about elsewhere in Europe, anywhere besides Scotland? You know, There are no borrowed sheep outside the UK. There are issues about livestock traveling between countries. I mean, if some Americans were to approach me and say, look, uh, I mean, one way you can do it is you import semen and you breed with the most similar looking breed of sheep you can find, which in America would be either the Fusoe or Shetland sheep. And you keep introducing with every generation, you go back to the semen. <laughs> so you'll after, I think after when you get to 15, 16 of a breed, you say, okay, this is as near as we can get to a pure breed. That would probably be a more affordable way of doing it, although a slower way. And it wouldn't bring risks of importing diseases into America. Right. We have a woman here locally who's doing that very thing with Gotland sheep. And, you know, she's not to 15, 16 yet. Uh, we have some part Gotland sheep. And they're, they're, they were from an island, I think, somewhere in the North Atlantic, off the coast of Sweden yeah, or something. It's an island in Sweden, part of Sweden. Yeah. 
And so our tiny little, we only have five. So we have four part Gotland that are a result of this woman's genetic work. It is exactly what you're talking about. She imports the, the semen and gets these beautiful little sheep. We have wonderful wool. And we have one little Shetland. She's just, just beautiful little, little Lily. You, you also got to think about, yeah, the, the conditions in America and Britain are very different. I mean, we're, we're wet and temperate. So in a sense, importing semen and using it to get lambs from some of your own sheep that are well adapted to your environment, I think would perhaps be a better way of doing it. And then you, you'll end up with almost pure borrow rate that are fully adapted to conditions in America. But yeah, if anyone wants to think about doing it, then contact me. Right. I'm sure there are a lot of listeners out there that might be interested, especially when you describe in the book, you describe just the luscious, beautiful character of that wool. And I personally know some people that are probably drooling over that right now as we speak. <laughs> we do produce knitting yarn and Jenny actually has shipped fleece and knitting yarn to buyers in America. Oh, wonderful. Yes. So we can certainly get the wool across to you. Well, thank you so much again. This has been such a lovely conversation. I've learned so much and I'm sure our listeners will enjoy it so much. Lovely talking to you. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much for your time. I've loved the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I hope your listeners enjoy it. Thank you for tuning in, calling in and spreading the good dirt. We love hearing from you. You can reach our listener voicemail at 443-459-1950. That's 443-459-1950. You can find this number in our show notes and in our Instagram profile. This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow living lifestyle community. And the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at WeAreLadyFarmer. That's We Are Lady Farmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt. Goodbye.